That's for those of you who remember the guy that used to be here. Hey, it's good to be back at Grace. It really is. Um, this morning, I want to start by thanking those of you who are here this morning who were part of Grace back in the 1980s when Mary and I and our three guys were, uh, were here among you. I want to thank you for uh, loving uh, a very young pastor who was in his mid-30s, and uh, you, did a gr- you did a great job of, of that. Um, one of the things that I remember the most about your love for us was that every time uh, Billy Tucker wrote out a paycheck, he would write out a second check and escort me to the bank where I would hand it over to Theta Busby, and uh, that way this church uh, set aside some retirement money for a young guy who probably could have put that money to good use, but uh, now that I'm square in the face of retirement, uh, that, looks, uh, that looks really good. So I really appreciate your love for me uh, even more. Um, as I think of the, the days that I was here at Grace, I remember in particular one very sultry uh, East Texas summer day as I was... Uh, out uh, taking care of the uh, yard and shrubs around the parsonage, which, by the way, used to be right here. Um, in fact, I, I just have this strange feeling that I'm preaching from my bedroom. <laughs> anyway, um, I was out doing the yard work, and, and one, of the, one of the faithful flock happened by uh, that morning and, and said to me, Jeff, before you leave Grace, I want the grass to grow clear across the sidewalk. And he said this as I was meticulously, with ridiculous perfection, uh, edging down the sidewalk. Uh, Mary actually had a way of saying it even better. She would often say to me, knock it off, we're raising kids, not grass. (laughs) So how on earth could a couple of jabs like that be considered loving. Come with me now into a passage of scripture, and if you have your Bibles or your iPad or your smartphone or whatever it is, turn with me to 1 John 4, where we're going to see a passage that includes the word for God's love, the God's kind of love, you know it, agape. It's gonna have that word either as a noun or a verb 29 times in 15 verses. So turn with me, if you will, to 1 John uh, chapter 4. And this morning we're going to be looking at 1 John 4 uh, verses 7 to 21. And since love is so prominent in this passage this morning, that's what I believe God wants us to focus on. Particularly, and and I guess I'm going to follow the old uh, sermon axiom Tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. So here's here's what I'm going to tell you. Um, In this passage, we see an amazing flow of love from the God who is love into our hearts so that it can flow out to others. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, and all three members of the Trinity are involved. God is love. He sent his son. He loved us as he paid the penalty for our sin, and then he sent his spirit into our hearts so that that love could just flow out of us. 
And John is going to show us this this morning in two main sections. So if you go to that next slide there, I think those two sections are on there. There you go. The first six verses of our passage is just a wonderful exposition of divine love. And then we're going to see how that applies uh, to our daily lives. So first of all, uh, 1 John 4, 7 through 12. John has talked about love in this epistle back in chapters 2 and chapter 3. But this morning, and here's the first three blanks in your bulletin, if you, you just need to patch those in. If you go to that next slide there, I think you're going to see some underlying stuff on there. There we go. In these first six verses, we're going to see that love is God's eternal nature. It is his historical gift. And finally, it is also his present activity by the work of his spirit in our hearts. So first of all, let's look at uh, 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8. He begins and says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And verse 8 is kind of the opposite. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Perhaps best to look at that in its logical order. The logical order is God is love, and then he works in our hearts, and we're born again, and that love takes root within us, and then we can come into relation with one another and love each other. And then love can even flow out of us to others. So that's kind of the logical flow. Now let's go back and kind of look at some of those parts. God is love. Love is his essential nature. It is an attribute of God that he is, to use the Greek word, agape. Divine love in scripture, how on earth would we describe that? Let's define what we're talking about this morning. Now I'm going to give you a long definition here and then try to shorten it up. If I was to define agape love, God's kind of love, I would say it is a communicable attribute of God. That means it's part of the image of God in man. He communicated that attribute to us. We can love as we're born again. Now, for example, omnipresence, God is everywhere. That is not a communicable attribute. That's an incommunicable attribute because we don't share that one. But we do share this one, a communicable attribute of God exhibited perfectly among the three members of the Trinity from all eternity. There's been love for all eternity among the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But God built that agape love in part, at least, into the image of man. We share, not in perfection, but we share that image of that part of God's character in our image. But that was terribly marred by the fall into sin, and yet it can be redeemed and brought to uh, our lives as we come to know Christ. That's the theological stuff. What does it really mean practically? It means that love acts sacrificially to meet the deepest and truest need of another. Notice especially that this divine love requires someone to love. Hence the need for the Trinity. It sacrifices self and it takes action based on truth. Now, 
just an aside here, um, I had the privilege of living in the Muslim world for a number of years. That doesn't mean that I'm the world expert on the Middle East or Iraq or uh, Islam. But it is interesting to me that this attribute of our God is one of the most significant differences between our faith and that of Islam. If God is love, then there must be an expression of that love in the eternal relationships among the members of the Trinity. To say it another way, if God is not multiple persons in one God, then agape could not be a divine attribute because there must be someone to love. Islam is notably missing this attribute as seen in the fact that the God of Islam primarily does not want relationship, he wants submission. And that's what the Arabic word Islam means. It means submission. And a Muslim is a person who submits. So a, a huge difference here between the, uh, the two faiths. So God, in his very essence, is love. His eternal nature is love. But it's not just his eternal nature, it's his historical gift as we go on to verses 9 through 11. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. How did it come that this love that characterized God for all eternity, how on earth did something that precious, that amazing, that perfect, how did that come to be in me? God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might have life through him. Uh, that's sort of a remake of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him may have eternal life and not perish. Basically, John 4, 1 John 4.9 says the same thing. And then verse 10. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the, another big word, propitiation for our sins. Your version might say uh, sacrifice. It might say atonement. Uh, there's a number of words that could be used there. We'll come back and talk about this. Love is not only God's eternal nature. It's his historical gift. Divine love must take action to meet the deepest and truest need of another. And we see that in verse 9, as God manifested his love, entered history in the person of his unique son, and provided us life through faith in him. Verse 10 explains this love a little bit further by using one of the most graphic theological terms in all of Scripture. Uh, John's the one who uses it. And he, he says, God the Father sent God the Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That big theological word means that the Father sent the Son to satisfy his own wrath against our sin. He sent his Son to pour out the just punishment for sin that was due us on him. Nowhere in all of creation is there a greater demonstration of love taking sacrificial action to meet 
the deepest, greatest, truest need of another. By the way, another major difference with Islam is this whole idea of propitiation. There is no propitiation in Islam. Uh, I've been meeting for about two years now with a Muslim grad student, and uh, we've become great friends, great guy. And uh, we talk about this a lot, because uh, in Islam, uh, Allah is merciful to some, the ones he chooses to be merciful to. And he's not merciful to others. Well, uh, he's merciful to these guys, and he's not merciful to them. Okay, the ones he's not merciful to, they pay the penalty for their own sin for all eternity. What about this bunch that he's merciful to? Who pays the penalty for their sin? Well, he's just merciful. That's not what our faith says. Our faith says that we are all sinners separated from God by our sin, sin that is due just punishment. And the God that we know is a God of justice. Now, the two things that we've already pointed out about Islam are really interesting. In Islam, there's no love of the kind that we're talking about. And in Islam, there's no justice. And if you don't have love, and if you don't have justice, what do you get? You get dash, the Arabic term for ISIS. That's what you get. Not every Muslim is a terrorist. Some Muslims are very peaceful people, and they understand jihad in a very peaceful sense. But there are those who take the Quran very literally, and since it is without love and without justice, you can have such a thing as what we have seen going on in Syria and across the Middle East over the last four or five years. So the God of love eternally loved us in Christ historically. Logically then, verse 11 says, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another in the same self-sacrificing way based on truth. You see the flow of love here? It starts with God, flows through the cross, then into the lives of believers who are then enabled to share God's love with others, both believers and non-believers. And by the way, this is what all the surveys, surveys in the Muslim world, surveys in the non-Muslim world, continue to say that the number one reason people give for why they came to faith in Christ is that somebody loved them. They saw God's love demonstrated because someone sacrificed themselves to meet their deepest need. Beloved, let us love one another. Finally, love is God's present activity, finally in the first six verses. Not off the hook yet. Uh, Look at verse 12. And this really, verse 12 is a transition book. It takes you, excuse me, verse. It takes you from the first part to the second part. No one has beheld God at any time. That sounds familiar. We'll come back to that. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now, the next 
few verses, verses 13 to 16, are going to explain what John means by God abiding in us. And then look at verse 17, he comes back to love being perfected in us. So that's why this is a transition verse. We're going from the first part where love is expounded upon. Now the practical application in terms of God abiding in us and his love being perfected in us. But verse 12 is kind of the transition, and it's a really, really cool one because if you think about that verse, it sounds a lot like John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. In that verse, we are told that the invisible God was made visible as the word, the divine word of John 1, 1 to 18, took on flesh, John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God, the eternal son, took on a perfect human nature so that he became the God-man. In John 1, 18, God was made visible in his son. Now here in 1 John 4, 12, it is not the Son that is here. It is His Spirit that is here in you. And you make God known to those around you. In Jesus, people see what God is like. And as we love one another, people see what God is like. Now, the next few verses are going to expand on these two things, God abiding in us and his love perfected in us. So if you could go to the next slide there, that'll take us through uh, to the end of our passage. When we love one another, John's going to tell us, uh, God abides in us. What does that mean? Look at verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Here's where the third person of the Trinity comes in. God is love. He sent the Son to be the propitiation for our sin, and then he sent the Spirit into our hearts so that this love could flow in us, through us, and out to others. Verse 14. And we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And we have come to know that we have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. Second time in this passage. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Wow, lots of abides there, six times in these few verses. What is this all talking about? Well, the word abide is a very favorite word of the apostle John. He uses it way more than anybody else. You may think of the passage in John 15 about abiding in the vine. The word, though, I think, whenever you're trying to figure out the meaning of a tough theological word, find the same word used in a non-theological way. And John uses it that way in John 14, too, where Jesus says, in my Father's house are many mansions, if you have the King James, or your version might say dwelling places, or places to live. And that's what the idea of abiding is. It means living somewhere permanently. When we love one another, God shows that he's living in us in the person of his Holy Spirit, as verse 13 says. 
Oswald Chambers, great little devotional book, if you haven't discovered it yet in your life, called My Utmost for His Highest. It's in two versions. One version, if you're British or that background, you should get that. That's the kind of language that it uses. Um, but there's another kind of English, and that's called American. <laughs> and uh, there's been a revision that's been made by, by a man of God who, called Jim Reinman. And uh, Jim's done a great job with the permission of the uh, group that holds the copyright. And so it's out now. It's called the updated version of My Utmost for His Highest. And so I'm quoting from that. And it says this. It is impossible to exhaust the love of God. And it is impossible to exhaust my love if it flows from the Spirit of God in me. Verses 14 through 16 expand on God abiding or living in the believer, in the person of the Holy Spirit. Verse 14 is basically a recap of the gospel. We've beheld and bear witness that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Good old John 3.16 all over again. So a recap of the gospel. Verse 15 gives the proper confessing response to the gospel. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And then verse 16 kind of summarizes all of this abiding. And I'll just kind of paraphrase it for you. When we understand the good news, when we understand the gospel of God's love, the love that God has had for us, and when we trust in Christ because of that good news, then we abide or live in God's love, and we live in relationship with God, and his love abides or flows into us and through us and out of us. God abides or lives in the believer in the person of his Holy Spirit. And finally, when we, uh, or secondly there, uh, when we love one another, uh, love is perfected in us. Let's look at that. Remember verse 12 said, uh, if we love one another, God abides in us. Okay, we just talked about that in verses 16 through 13 through 16. Now he comes back to that second phrase toward the end of verse 12, and what are we talking about here? Love being perfected in us. Look at verse 17. By this, love is perfected with us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment that as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because love involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. These verses developed that phrase back in verse 12 if we love one another, his love is perfected in us. Now, perfection in the New Testament, what does that mean? It usually has the idea of something finding its ultimate goal. When we think of perfection, we usually think in the absolute sense. But most of the time in the New Testament, when we're talking about perfection or maturity, we're talking about reaching something reaching its ultimate goal. So notice, if you will, verse 16, or excuse me, verse 17. By this, by what? Well, look at the previous verse. God abides in him. By God abiding in you and in me, love is perfected. It reaches its ultimate goal. 
By this abiding of God in the believer, by his spirit, divine love reaches its intended goal. In other words, as we love others, the love that has been sourced in God from eternity past, that flowed through the cross, that captured our hearts in believing and confessing faith, has resulted in the indwelling of God in his spirit in us, and that is the ultimate goal of God's love as his spirit in us flows that love out to others. I think of John 4.14 and Jesus' words to the woman at the well. He said, whoever drinks of the water I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water I give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life and flowing out to others. How did Jesus start that conversation? Give me a drink. And as love works in us, we're able to offer that drink to others. The rest of verses 17 through 19 tells of an assuring outcome of love reaching its intended goal in the believer. He says here, and, and there's some words here that can kind of cause us concern, but we'll try to explain that. He says, we, this is so that we can have confidence on the day of judgment because as he is, probably a reference to Jesus, so also are we in this world. When Jesus was in this world, he loved people perfectly. When the Spirit of God comes in us, he can love people perfectly through us, which is the amazing thing. Now, when we see God's kind of love flowing through us, it should give us confidence that we do, in fact, know God. And as we contemplate standing before the judgment seat of Christ and our Lord reviewing the works in our life, if we're able to see God's love flowing from him through the cross, through his spirit, in us and out through us, that gives us a huge amount of assurance as we think, hey, just as Jesus loved people in this world, God's spirit in me is loving people in this world. I'm his child and so that should bring us a great deal of assurance. Now, verse 18 can be troubling, though, because it says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. <clears throat> Do you love perfectly? I don't. What's John talking about here? I think it's not perfection in the absolute sense. It is rather perfection in the practical sense. Love reaches its intended goal as that love that was sourced in God flowed through the cross. We accept Christ, the Spirit comes in, and that love flows through us. And as we see that, as we go, oh, yeah, I get it. God is love. Jesus died for me. I accept him, and then his Spirit enables me to love in God's way. That can bring us a great deal of assurance. So I don't believe that verse 18 should trouble us because God, John is not talking about love that is perfect in the absolute sense, and that, of course, is only true of God, but rather he's stressing the practical sense of love reaching its goal as we share God's love with others. On the other hand, of course, a person who fears God's judgment may not have actually experienced God's love through faith in Christ. Verse 19 is a great summary of all of this. John says, we love because he first loved us, and as John Stott, the great Anglican uh, expositor, uh, now with the Lord, says, 
our great characteristic if we are Christians is not that we fear, but that we love. Finally, in verses 20 and 21, um, we see that as we love one another, we prove that we love God. Here's a couple of verses of assurance here at the end of this passage that are kind of stated in the negative, but we can understand them in the positive. Let me read them first. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, oh, I love God. He's a liar. The one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Kind of back to that previous verse that talked about not seeing God. And this is the commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. When the Pharisees came to Jesus uh, toward the end of his uh, earthly ministry and tested him, uh, they said, Lord, what's what's the greatest commandment in the law? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And the second is just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's basically how our passage ends in verse 21. This is the commandment we have from him. Love God, love one another. If you do that, there's great assurance in your heart that in fact you know Christ. Because you can't love people with Christ's kind of love unless he's working in your heart through his spirit. Stated positively then, to both love God and love the brother is to prove that we are born of God and know God through faith in his son. So let's summarize this and see if we can bring it all back together. One more uh, slide ahead there. Um, What God has, excuse me, what John has shown us is the divinely planned flow of God's love from God who is the source of this love, who is in fact in his being this kind of love, through the cross, where Jesus propitiated the Father. He took care of the wrath of God. He took care of the justice that was due our sin in our place. And then that love flowed into us as we trusted in Christ and received the gift of eternal life and righteousness as a gift and the indwelling spirit as well so that that could then flow out to others, so that they could see the unseen God in our day as they could see Jesus during his days of earthly ministry. Applications abound. I've got a couple of them listed here. Um, The first one is a rather general one. Um, Did you notice in this passage the centrality of Jesus bearing The punishment that was due our sin because God is just. And I want to encourage you, when when it's hard to love someone because they've hurt you, let your anger, let your wrath flow to the cross. What did David say as he was confessing his sin in Psalm 51? Against thee and thee only have I sinned. What? Committed adultery. He murdered her husband. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. Basically what David was saying there is that basically any sin, any hurt, any wrong is a sin against God. And you know what? On the cross, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for that sin. He bore the wrath of God against that sin. On the cross, Jesus finished the work of wrath-bearing. 
let your wrath flow to the cross. If you're sitting here this morning and you're hurting because somebody's offended you, let your wrath flow to the cross. Look at this verse. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Let your wrath flow to the cross and love that other person. Not easy, but that's what we should do. Secondly, a more specific one. As some of you know, I work with international students. There's about a million people from the mission field that come here every year for school. Uh, probably one or 200 of them right down the street here at SFA. Perhaps you're here this morning. Any international students here this morning? Maybe not. They're there. The amazing thing is 75% of them will never enter an American home, but if you love them and invite them, they'll come you will have Arab food, <laughs> Chinese food, Indian food. Okay, not my favorite, but um, you can have that. You love on them. They are outside their home culture. They are hurting for love. You invite them into your home. You fix a meal for them, then let them fix a meal for you. That's where it gets fun. 80% of them never come to a church service. Invite them to grace. Invite them to come with you. Their English may not be quite what it needs to be to understand propitiation. You're sitting there saying, yeah, mine's not either. But <laughs> invite them. Invite them into your home. Invite them into your church. It's amazing what God can do as you sacrifice your time and your attention to lavish that on a student who is out of their home culture and starved for love, opening their hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now finally, back to that opening illustration. How on earth could those comments be considered loving? Well, they were loving because both of those people, someone from this congregation and my wife, uh, were basing their comments on my truest need. They knew that I needed to turn away from perfection toward the people in my house. And praise God, through the years, his love has changed me, and I'm much more oriented in that direction. I still edge my lawn, but let's pray. Lord, <laughs> thank you for this time to look at love. Father, there is no way we can exhaust this topic, but what a lead-in to the Lord's table. And we pray that you'd bless us now as we share in the bread and cup of the one who suffered the punishment for our sin and rose again in his name.